Tonight, we will begin with our series on environmental racism. This is the environmental justice. Okay, got to wait for it. All righty, this is the Environmental Justice Report with Janine Moloff. We are a new show and we're hoping to build listenership. We hope that we can bring about some meaningful dialogue regarding the issues of environmental justice in all its faceted meanings. Uh, I look forward to everybody, everybody joining us. We hope that you will enjoy our show. The Environmental Justice Report with Janine Moloff. And we're almost ready to get started, folks. We're almost there. Almost there. 52 seconds. Bear with me. I'm new to this. At least new to producing. But it's been a fun run. I'm enjoying it immensely. So we're almost there. 39 seconds. We're getting close for a new show. And I hope that everybody enjoys it, and I hope they learn something along the way. So 28 seconds. We're getting close. And 22 seconds. Bear with me. I'm new at this whole set. And we're almost there. Okay. And almost there. Welcome to, welcome to the environmental. Oh, we're almost there. Welcome to the Environmental Justice Report with Janine Moloff. I'm Janine Moloff. I'm your host, and I'm also the producer of this show. We hope that you'll enjoy this program and that it will open lines of dialogue regarding all issues that pertain to environmental justice worldwide. Tonight, we'll begin with our series on environmental racism. Over the years, it has become increasingly clear that communities of color, as well as lower income groups, suffer the brunt of the most egregious and dangerous pollution. Whether it be the area of Louisiana, also known as Cancer Alley, or various zip codes here in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, recording the highest levels of childhood lead poisoning in the nation, communities of color, which are also often lower income, suffer the worst outcomes. The injustice can, this injustice cannot be allowed to stand. Not only do various industries pollute these communities mercilessly, but these same industries work to eradicate any meaningful environmental regulations through dark lobby groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC. Through groups like ALEC, who has been accused often of ghostwriting the law, state legislators sign away the rights of people to breathe clean air and drink safe water. These groups push laws that increasingly criminalize protected First Amendment activities. So tonight we're going to examine a few of the cases as we begin this mini-series on environmental racism. Now we're going to backtrack a little bit here. We know, because we've heard a lot from the uh, Republican side of things, that they call environmentalists eco-terrorists. And we know what they mean. We mean that they mean that anybody who dares stand up to the multiple injustices and crimes that have been pushed on us by the fossil fuel industry and several other polluting industries, they're called an eco-terrorist. It's an attempt to slander the public from basically standing up for their human rights. But I I would maintain that eco-terrorists are real and they thrive, but in government and in lobby firms and in corporate law firms. Those 
that those places are where the true echo terrorists exist. And now these corporate-sponsored echo terrorists want you to die, especially if you're a person of color and poor. And so we're going to start this series with an understanding of what environmental racism is. I know I mentioned ALEC and other groups that go strike the law and um, basically sponsor these laws to criminalize First Amendment activity to protest these corporate actions. But I think we need to backtrack a little bit first, and we'll get to that. So the definition of environmental racism, this is from the the group Green Action, and their full title is Green Action for Health and Environmental Justice. And they, they actually put out a statement on environmental justice and environmental racism. So there's a few little differences here. So according to Green Action, the environmental justice movement has basically broadened their perspective beyond just the scope of conservation and saving natural resources. And they define the environment as, they've also increased the idea of the environment. They define the environment as, quote, where we live, work, play, learn, and pray, end quote. So when we look at the environmental justice movement, Green Action has us really looking at it as something that's more intersectional on all levels. And the environmental justice movement is, is intersectional. It's, according to this group, intergenerational, multiracial, and international in scope. And it promotes environmental, economic, and social justice and they do that by recognizing that there is a link, a direct link, between systems that are economic, environmental, and the associated health issues. And this group is demanding that all of our communities have a right to be safe and clean, as well as our workplace environments. And environmental justice, they go on to say, really speaks to those cultural norms and values, rules, regulations, behaviors, policies, and decisions that are made in an effort to support sustainability and the idea that every group of society, every person can have some confidence that their environment is safe and that they're equally represented. And environmental justice also can only be realized when all people realize their full potential without any interruption or um, difficulties caused by environmental racism or inequity. So environmental justice movement also supports the idea of decent paying jobs with a living wage, quality schools, recreation, decent housing, adequate health care, and yes, democratic decision making and personal empowerment. And let's face it, under this Trump administration, we don't have hardly any of that. Uh, and a community of environmental justice, they respect both cultural and biological diversity and that there's equal access to resources and institutions to help all persons grow and prosper. Now, we just talked about environmental justice. And again, we've got to deal with these terms in order to really recognize it when it's happening so that we, we know where we're going. Environmental racism is a little more specific. According to this group, quote, environmental racism is the disproportionate impact of environmental hazards on people of color. Okay, that's a big statement right there. Disproportionate impact of environmental hazards. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people, including in the environmental movement, that are, that are more affluent, that are white, and have been slow to recognize this idea of environmental racism. And we need to understand that our brothers and sisters of color are suffering 
more so than any of us. Environmental justice, they go on to say, is the movement's response to environmental racism, okay? So now we're gonna talk about environmental equity versus actual environmental justice. Environmental equity is not the same as environmental justice. It may sound like it's the same, but it's not. Environmental equity is, is basically a term and a response used by government to try and basically quiet down uh, the environmental justice movement. Government agencies such as the EPA have been working to co-opt the environmental justice movement by taking this idea of environmental equity and redefining environmental justice to just merely mean equity, or as they call it, quote, fair treatment and meaningful involvement, which is something EPA doesn't accomplish anyway, but it really does fall short of the whole idea of ending environmental racism in, in a, so that we can actually attain environmental justice for all. The environmental justice movement doesn't just want to redistribute the harms caused by certain pollutants. They want to abolish those harms. And I think that is more the road we need to go. Environmental racism according to this group, quote, refers to the institutional rules, regulations, policies, or government and or corporate decisions that deliberately target certain communities for locally undesirable land uses and tax and lax enforcement of zoning and environmental laws resulting in communities being disproportionately exposed to toxic and hazardous waste based upon race, end quote. That's a big statement. Environmental racism is really the accusation that both the corporate end of the spectrum as well as the governmental controls and agencies have basically worked to, yes, deliberately target and dump on certain communities to poison them more, to inconvenience them more, to make their homes and their neighborhoods worth less, and the, that is based on race. and. It's true. Now, there's several factors that do contribute to or cause environmental racism, and they include intentional neglect, obviously, um, and this corporate, uh, corporate and governmental entities claiming that there is a need for uh, receptacle or pollutants and that it has to be in an urban area, in a poor urban area not in an affluent white area. And there's also, there's a lack of institutional power for those communities of color so that they can't, it's very difficult for them to successfully challenge the, the dumping of these pollutants in their neighborhoods disproportionately compared to other communities. And that also results in lower land values for those same neighborhoods, which are predominantly uh, uh, basically, communities of color. And we also know, it's been well documented, that communities of color in lower income communities are, as this guy said, disproportionately impacted by polluting industries, and even more specifically, hazardous waste facilities. And that the regulation for these industries isn't just lax, it is criminally inept. So now, we're going to talk about what do they want? What, what is, how do we solve the problem of environmental racism? 
how do we come to this idea of environmental justice? Are there some principles, some guiding principles? And yes, there are. Uh, and this dates back to 1991. There was an environmental leadership summit by, uh, from the first national people of color. It was held in 1991 in Washington, D.C. And these delegates uh, drafted and adopted 17 principles that would define what they considered economic justice to encompass. And since 1991, those 17 principles have really served as a foundation and a defining document for this growing grassroots movement pushing environmental justice. So the first thing I'm going to do, they have a preamble. They actually wrote basically like a constitution. So I'm going to read the preamble that was written by the delegates to the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit dating back to 1991 in Washington, D.C. And here's the here is the preamble. Quote, we, the people of color, gathered together at this multinational people of color environmental leadership summit to begin to build a national and international movement of all peoples of color to fight the destruction and taking of our lands and communities, to hereby reestablish our spiritual interdependence to the sacredness of our Mother Earth to respect and celebrate each of our cultures, languages, and beliefs about the natural world and our roles in healing ourselves, to ensure environmental justice, to promote economic alternatives which would contribute to the development of environmentally safe livelihoods, and to secure our political, economic, and cultural liberation that has been denied for over 500 years of colonization and oppression resulting in the poisoning of our communities and land and the genocide of our people do affirm and adopt these principles of environmental justice. And I'm just going to read them straight from this, principles of environmental justice. Number one, and I'm just going to quote straight from the document. Quote, environmental justice affirms the sacredness of Mother Earth, ecological unity, and the interdependence of all species and the right to be free from ecological destruction. Two. Environmental justice demands that public policy be based on mutual respect and justice for all people, free from any form of discrimination or bias. Three, environmental justice mandates the right to ethical, balanced, and responsible uses of land and renewable resources in the interest of a sustainable planet for humans and other living things. Four, environmental justice calls for universal protection from nuclear testing, extraction, production, and disposal of toxic hazardous waste and poisons and nuclear testing that threaten the fundamental right to clean air, land, water, and food. Five, environmental justice affirms the fundamental right to political, economic, cultural, and environmental self-determination of all people. Six, environmental justice demands the cessation of, all, of the production of all toxins, hazardous waste, and radioactive materials and that all past and current producers be held strictly accountable to the people for detoxification and the containment at the point of production. Environmental justice demands the right to participate as equal partners at every level of decision-making, including needs assessment, planning, implementation, enforcement, and evaluation. Eight, environmental justice affirms the right of all workers to a safe and healthy work environment without being forced to choose between an unsafe livelihood and unemployment. It also affirms the right of those who work to be to work at home to be free from environmental hazards. Nine, 
Environmental justice protects the right of victims of environmental injustice to receive full compensation and reparations for damages, as well as quality health care. Ten, environmental justice considers governmental acts of environmental injustice a violation of international law, a universal declaration a violation of international law, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, and the United Nations Convention on Genocide. I'm going to read that one again. Ten, environmental justice considers governmental acts of environmental injustice to be a violation of international law, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, and the United Nations Convention on Genocide. Can you hear us now, Mr. Trump? Number 11, Environmental justice must recognize a special legal and natural relationship of Native people to the U.S. government through treaties, agreements, compacts, and covenants affirming sovereignty and self-determination. Twelve, environmental justice affirms the need for urban and rural ecological policies to clean up and rebuild our cities and rural areas in balance with nature, honoring the cultural integrity of all our communities and provided fair access for all to the full range of resources. 13, environmental justice calls for the strict enforcement of principles and informed consent. I'll say that again. Environmental justice calls for the strict enforcement of principles of informed consent and a halt to the testing of experimental, reproductive, and medical procedures and vaccinations on people of color. That one's very important. Right now, we do not have informed consent at all, and certainly don't have enforcement. Number 14, environmental justice opposes the destructive operations of multinational corporations. Agreed. Number 15, environmental justice opposes military occupation, repression, and exploitation of lands, peoples, and cultures, and other life forms. 16, Environmental justice calls for the education of present and future generations, which emphasizes social and environmental issues based on our experience and an appreciation of our diverse cultural perspectives and 17, finally. Environmental justice requires that we as individuals make personal and consumer choices to consume as little of Mother Earth's resources and to produce as little waste as possible and make the conscious decision to challenge and reprioritize our lifestyles to ensure the health of the natural world for present and future generations. And all I can say to that is amen. Now we're going to change gear a little bit. There was a report that surfaced, and it confirms the historic reality of environmental racism. And this report that confirms the reality of environmental racism came from an unlikely source the Trump administration's EPA. I know, you can't make this stuff up. Trump's EPA concluded that environmental racism is real. Hallelujah. So there was a new report from Trump's EPA, and it did actually determine that people of color and communities of color are more likely to live near uh, basically areas that are heavily polluted as well as breathing polluted air. And this, they made this announcement even as Trump's EPA is working feverishly to roll back the regulations that might protect these communities from this egregious pollution. So this is something that, again, you can't make it up. The Trump administration, no shock here, has moved to dismantle standing EPA plans to deal with the disproportionate risk of communities of color. And they continue this plan to dismantle 
many of the institutions um, and researchers that have been embedded in the EPA's National Center for Environmental Assessment released a study that again, once again confirmed, people of color and communities of color more often live near pollution sources than other groups. They more often breathe polluted air. And the study also confirmed that people that live in poverty are exposed to a heavy, more heavy concentration of fine particulate matter than people that live in more affluent areas. Now, the study's authors claim that, quote, results at national, state, and county scales all indicate that non-whites tend to be burdened disproportionately to whites, end quote. Now, this study from the Trump's EPA did focus on particulate matter. And particulate matter is basically all those little fine grains that come from air pollution. You can't see it, but it can have very egregious effects on your health and your lifespan. So the study went on to say, quote, a group of both natural and man-made microscopic suspensions of solids and liquids in the air that served as pollutants was what they were looking at. And they also included what they call anthropogenic particulates, which includes the following, automobile fumes, smog, food, oil, smoke, ash, construction dust. All these things have been linked to serious health problems. Now, particulate matter, as they call it, was also named as, quote, a known, a known definite carcinogen. I'm going to say that again. Particulate matter, that what they're talking about, that affects more communities of color, and yet Trump's EPA is rolling back the restrictions, was named as, quote, a known definite carcinogen by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. Particulate matter has also been named by the EPA as a leading contributor to multiple lung conditions, heart attacks, and subsequent premature death. This particulate matter pollutants has also been implicated in the increase in asthma prevalence and severity, and also among infants, low birth weights, and among the general population in those areas, high blood pressure. And the study further details there were other works that have previous works that also linked the disproportionate exposure to particulate matter to what they call America's racial geography, which is a nice way of saying they linked the disproportionate exposure of communities of color to policies of systemic racism. That's it. There was a 2016 study in Environment International, and it concluded that long-term exposure to pollutants is also directly associated with racial segregation, and the more and areas that were more highly segregated also suffered higher levels of exposure. There was a 2012 article in Environmental Health Perspective, and it discovered that what they called, quote, overall levels of particulate matter exposure, again, for communities of color were higher than for white communities. And the article also provided a breakdown of what types of particulate matter counts were in the exposure. And what they found, just to give you an example, um, differences in overall particulate matter by race were significant, but there were some key particulates that the difference between communities of color and white communities was enormous. So they looked at, for instance, Hispanics, apparently faced higher rates of chlorine exposure, apparently more than double that of whites. And they explained that chronic chlorine inhalation 
quote, is known for degrading cardiac function. Okay, it's a fancy way of saying that if you inhale too much chlorine, you're going to have heart damage. And the conclusion came from scientists at the National Center for Environmental Assessment. Um, and they not only confirmed that research, but they also pushed it in a public health journal. They also found that black people were exposed about one five times more particulate matter than whites. Hispanics had about 1.2 times more exposure than non-Hispanic whites. They found that people living in poverty had about 1.3 times more exposure than people above poverty. And, you know, they also found that black, for the black community, the uh, proposed, the amount of exposure was only explained by the segregation issue in part um, so that basically what they found was that the emissions were higher from individual factories in minority neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, this, there's really not much difference here. You know, they also found that places where there were hydraulic fracturing oil wells where fracking's going on, they were more likely, fracking areas more likely to be placed in communities of color in lower income communities. They also found the presence of benzene, which is a known carcinogen, and other dangerous chemicals to be linked to race. There's strong racial disparities. Uh, my hometown of St. Louis is a prime example. There are certain zip codes in St. Louis where you have an exorbitant amount of lead poisoning in children. And it's not just from air particulates in the ground now as well. And so you had a lot of children damaged by lead poisoning. And again, these were highly segregated neighborhoods. So, you know, we've looked at environmental justice. We've talked about the fact that this environmental racism exists, because it does. But we also have to deal with the reality, even among progressive communities, that the accusation of environmental racism is still quite controversial. Um, even among progressive populations, we still have a certain amount of white fragility. We need to get over it. Um, there's kind of this type of collective denial, even among progressives, regarding environmental racism, and we need to snap out of it, all right? We just do. This is an issue of basic justice, period. Um, and, you know, you can't, even in an era of extreme climate change, you have still many people, many whites, who still see environmental change as forces of nature, and they don't look at how one group is basically treated with favorable conditions at another group's expense. And we have to look at those discriminatory practices exhibited by government and polluting industries. So, you know, again, we don't like to talk about environmental racism, but we have to talk about it and we have to do something about it. And so when we look at this, you know, consider where are landfills, for instance, placed? Where are factories that out dangerous carcinogens place, most often in lower income neighborhoods and disproportionately black neighborhoods. You basically can't ignore the fact of environmental racism. The fact is, the finding that race has a stronger effect on exposure to pollutants than even poverty indicates that something beyond just the concentration of poverty among black people and Latino is at play, and this is a quote. Okay, and the study's authors quoted saying, 
quote, a focus on poverty to the exclusion of race may be insufficient to meet the needs of all burdened populations. And that is very true. Um, the fact is we dump on communities of color. And those of us that aren't guilty for dumping on communities of color have allowed this illegitimate action to continue. And we have to basically look at this and say we can't do this anymore. You know, this study really stands, and I'll quote them, as an implicit rebuke to the very administration that allowed its release, end quote. The study came from the EPA. And at the same time, Trump and his EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, are pushing to dilute any already weakened federal environmental justice work. They're halting some civil rights investigations in this field. They fired and replaced several scientists that have deep technical knowledge of this whole situation. And we have to look at also the fact that there were additional changes to Trump's EPA, such as transferring environmental justice offices to the policy office, staffed by Pruitt. Think about that for a minute. When you transfer attorneys that are working in the environmental justice office to the policy office, the same policy office that's staffed by Trump's EPA administrator, Pruitt, that means Pruitt reports directly to Trump. That means it's under Trump's dictatorial thumb. It's not about following true rule of law. Do you honestly believe that the new Pruitt hires will perform, not just Pruitt, but now Wheeler as well, will you perform with the autonomy granted under rule of law, which is what the article called lifelong environmental justice staffers, or will they be toadies to Trump's EPA and Trump's latest tantrum? It's kind of an obvious question, all right? These attorneys that were supposed to review environmental justice cases now switch the policy case. You have top scientists that have technical knowledge that have been basically released from their contracts. And we know that the EPA administrator, administrator first it was Pruitt, now it's Andrew Wheeler. Those secretaries report directly to Trump and they perform their duties at the pleasure of the sitting president, which means this is Trump's thumb on everything. You can't claim anything else. And they are working very hard to dismantle clean air provisions um, to basically give polluting industries their, their wish list. We get a little further now. Just in time for the COVID-19 crisis that has to date cost over 166,000 American lives. Again, we look, we see Trump's EPA has made good on the threat to roll back environmental protections, including on air quality. In this, what can only be called criminal age of Trump, the fossil fuel industry and Wall Street are permitted the dubious privilege to continue poisoning our air and water with impunity, while over a half a million people have perished. And the communities most heavily devastated by EPA's unilateral decision-making have been communities of color. The Trump EPA has continued the vile tradition of environmental racism by using agency rules which have a deceitful design, design, which will again allow polluting industries to poison communities of color, especially with legal impunity. So in March of this year, 2020, Sharon Lerner published in the Intercept coverage of the COVID pandemic, and it's an article called EPA is jamming through rollbacks that could increase coronavirus deaths. The sustained effects of air pollution appear to make 
people particularly vulnerable to the effects of the coronavirus. Okay, and she reported that basically here we're dealing with this coronavirus and it's spreading like wildfire. And we know there's been linkage by too many health professionals that people that already have compromised immune systems, compromised lungs, compromised heart are not only at higher risk of developing COVID, but they're at higher risk of dying from COVID so that these pollution issues affect them. And there is a disproportionate impact, once again, on communities of color. So in addition to basically dismantling any any laws that, that would make industry somewhat responsible, they came up with this plan to limit the use of research based on private health data. Now, that doesn't sound like it's a big deal. It really flew under the radar. This plan to limit the use of research based on private health data. Now, the Trump Trump CPA is temporarily lifting requirements on enforcement of pollution laws. And happens very, very simply is this. Trump's EPA is basically saying um, that they were only going to consider certain types of data. All right? So first of all, an EPA spokesman explained that, quote, uh, they were talking about dangerous amounts of pollution, okay? So to get back up here, there was this case in this article, and um, you have uh, basically, okay, let me back up here a little bit here. Okay, so there's a story about Pat Gonzalez. Gonzalez is 53. Gonzalez has had asthma since she moved near multiple oil refineries in Pasadena, Texas, some 20 years ago. All her kids have asthma and breathing problems, and there in that community there is sustained pollution. And so Pat and her family are very vulnerable to the effects of the virus. So Gonzalez has been staying inside. You know, she knows she has compromised lungs. Now, the EPA's own data confirms Gonzalez's accusation um, that her family's breathing problems are, quote, all because of the refineries. In October, the EPA measured benzene levels at the fence line between Pasadena Refining Systems, which is about a mile from Gonzalez's home. Now, you have to remember, benzene is a proven carcinogen as well. And the benzene levels were basically practically twice the exposure limits set by the National Institute of Occupational Safety. Okay, Pasadena Refining Systems, it's even worse. They're owned by wholesale polluter Chevron. And basically, Trump's EPA and their emissions have, of benzene have exceeded safety levels routinely, especially since the last quarter of 2019. Trump's EPA cited the COVID pandemic as the rationale for giving polluters like Chevron a free pass. You cannot make this stuff up. And what they did was they waived most of the usual requirements for monitoring, testing, sampling, and lab analysis of emissions of chemicals. And the EPA spokesman from the Trump administration explained, asked about the change, quote, EPA will not seek penalties for noncompliance with routine monitoring and reporting requirements. Um, but then they noted that the agency would do that only, quote, if on a case-by-case basis EPA agrees that such noncompliance was caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Talk about double talk. 
And then the email also said, quote, this action was necessary to avoid tying up EPA staff time with questions about routine monitoring and reporting requirements and instead allow EPA to focus on continued protection of human health and the environment, end quote. Okay, I have to read this. I have to just say, say what? How can the EPA focus on continued protection of human health and the environment, as they call it, without fulfilling and nonchalantly dismiss routine monitoring and reporting requirements? In my honest opinion, this must be Trump speak for accommodating corporate criminals. So the agency is just basically letting them do whatever. And now we have Andrew Rosenberg, who's the director of the Center for Science and Democracy at the Union of Concerned Scientists, speaking out. He says, quote, he's there. In other words, these, these uh, polluters are taking a political advantage of a crisis when they know it is more difficult to respond, end quote. There is a clear, in my we have to understand, there's a clear positive correlation between polluted air and the subsequent increase in compromised lung conditions, which then leads to increased COVID vulnerability and increased COVID deaths. But the Trump era has taken a cheeky, don't ask, don't tell approach. In other words, if there's no up-to-date reporting, then there's no proof of any violation. No records. No prosecution. Essentially, this policy enacted by Trump's EPA constitutes one of premeditated criminal negligence and a cover-up. That's really what it is. You know, Eric Schaefer, who's the executive director of the Environmental Integrity Project, you know, pretty much says the same thing, all right? Um, you know, he said, quote, if limits are exceeded, then companies have to fix it. That's the law. And then he went on to say, quote, if it's not documented, they don't have to. It's a see-no-evil situation, end quote. So now in comes Susan Bodine, and she's the assistant administrator for EPA for the EPA Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance. And she gave the excuse for this chosen refusal to perform the job they are paid to do because of, get this, staffing shortages. You can't make this stuff up. Apparently, Trump's EPA can't risk any employees, even if they socially distance which they can. In fact, most of these measurements are performed electronically, and the scientists analyze the results. There's practically no risk. But Trump is fine demanding that public schools open without any concern for teachers, children, or their parents. But the Trumpian world, you know, is delusionary thinking, and let's face it, composed of just plain stupid lies. Um, but again, Ms. Bodine, again, assistant administrator, for the EPA Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance. She's an attorney. She said it's a problem with staffing, with staffing shortages. And this was according to a memo that The Intercept acquired. And she said, quote, Bodine was quoted as saying, the quote, the consequences of the pandemic may affect facility operations and the availability of key staffing contractors and the ability of laboratories to timely analyze samples and provide results. Quote, that was from the memo. Now, to be fair, Susan Bodine, she's the assistant administrator at EPA's Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance. She's not a scientist. She's a lawyer. In fact, I think it's time we need to look at what these EPA staffers, especially the attorneys. Her former employers in the private sector before her dubious government service were Covington and Burling LLP and Barnes and Thornburg LLP. Now, both firms claim to have an environmental law section. The irony of that title is just too delicious. These environmental lawyers must enjoy the quality of irony. One of her former employers is the, uh, we'll start with Covington and Burling. 
from their website regarding their work as environmental lawyers, quote, this is from their website, our energy and natural resources clients include oil and gas exploration and production companies, pipeline and transport companies, electric utilities, and independent power producers, mining and mining equipment firms, nuclear developers, and so on and so forth. And they go on to say, skipping ahead, quote, our environmental clients rely on us to provide counsel for legislative advocacy. Why do they need legislative advocacy? Why can't they just follow the law? Rulemaking proceedings and challenges to regulations and so on and so forth. And our other previous corporate law employer was the firm of Barnes and Thornburg. And from their website, they said, quote, we apply our specialized industry know-how when working with national and international clients, such as, get this, major oil companies and refineries, industrial manufacturers and suppliers, pipeline owners and operators, and energy and mining businesses. And they go on and they brag about their honors and awards and how a number of their environmental lawyers have academic degrees in civil, chemical, and environmental engineering. And then they go on to say, quote, our environmental team functions like an environmental law boutique that's supported by the resources and collective know-how and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not accusing the assistant EPA administrator that's in charge of these, these rules of corruption. We don't have the proof yet. But I'm reporting the appearance of a conflict of interest. I mean, come on. Does any reasonably intelligent person actually believe that any attorney working for such an enormous, working for such enormous corporate law firms will, pardon the trite saying, bite the hand that may feed her again? I mean, why did EPA hire attorneys to allegedly safeguard the public from corporate abuses, which ironically is why the EPA came into existence in the first place? Why did they hire these people? from the ranks of corporate attorneys. Why didn't they hire attorneys who were actually working as good stewards to protect the public? So Susan Bodine may be honest in terms of serving the letter of the law while simultaneously perverting the law's true intent and stonewalling the public. No true environmental advocate would allow such a rule to be enacted. When are we going to demand accountability from those who claim to be working on behalf of the public? Subsequently, it's no shock that this rule is streamlined on without any question. The American Chemistry Council backed the enforcement suspension, translation, the Trump EPA's dereliction of legal obligation. And the American Chemistry Council is a trade group. They represent the chemical industry. And they like it. All right? Now, I, they're quoted as saying that this enforcement suspension, quote, is needed because essential personnel and resources must be devoted to maintaining production and meeting increased demand for vital chemical products such as sanitizers, disinfectants, and plastics for consumers, governments, and the healthcare community, end quote. I don't know how the EPA performing its monitoring duties somehow interferes with the provision and production of sanitizers and disinfectants to the general public or the medical community. If this is the case, then how do they explain the dire shortage of PPE to our medical professionals, even with the relief from EPA monitoring. The Chemistry Council didn't offer any explanation for this dubious causality to date. All right? If they need to be released from these requirements, then why is it we still have a shortage of PPE? Environmental watchdogs did fight back against these types of lies of omission. They're stupid lies. Uh, again, Schaefer. Um, was basically, he's with the organization, uh, he 
Schaefer's also working with Louisiana Bucket Brigade, Public Citizen, Environment Texas, and other groups, and he wrote to Bodine. And he asked the EPA to post online any agreements with these regulated companies that listed the delay or reduced that delayed or reduced environmental requirements, including, quote, a clear explanation of how the coronavirus pandemic made such decisions necessary and what, this, and what steps facilities will take to reduce their health impacts, end quote. Schaefer admitted there could be some short staffing due to COVID, but they don't need a blanket exemption from these laws. Um, Schaefer went on to say, quote, if everyone's at work refining oil and making chemicals, and it's just your compliance staff that's been coronavirus out, then they need to explain that, end quote. Um, and Schaefer went on to say, actions that obscure the release of toxins or other air pollutants that exacerbate asthma, breathing difficulty, and cardiovascular problems in the midst of a pandemic that can cause respiratory failure is irresponsible from a public health perspective, end quote. Um, and you know, there's been other criticisms. Uh, Elena Kraft, Senior Director for Climate and Health at the Environmental Defense Fund, said, quote, fence-line communities are already at, inc at increased risk for developing devastating health outcomes like cancer. And Kraft was also quoted, she was concerned about communities that were exposed to the air pollutant ethylene oxide, which is a gas released from uh, the result of industrial processing Part of some of it has to do with the sterilization of medical equipment, and it can this, being exposed to this gas can actually decrease and lower immunity, and also at the same time increase cancer rates. And so we have this really stupid excuse from Trump EPA, um, and now we come to something that's even worse. Trump EPA. This is how they're limiting the use of epidemiology to further cover up the COVID spread and protect Trump from criminal prosecution. Now, epidemiology, and I'm afraid we're going to probably run out of time, unfortunately, is the science that deals with how any sort of communicable disease or any condition goes through a population. And it's important to determine whether or not something's increasing or decreasing. Now, there's a broadened rule, and here's the thing. It would limit the use of research that uses or is based on confidential health information, and not just for regulatory decisions, but also in what the EPA calls, quote, influential scientific information. This, again, sounds really benign. It's not. First of all, influential scientific information basically includes everything from risk assessments, profiles of toxicology, in other words, how toxic a substance may be, health and safety assessments, and so on. Now, the proposed rule can, the change can be traced back to a tobacco industry strategy to know that was designed to evade regulation. So the EPA defended uh, this idea that basically you can't use this confidential medical information. Now, when we're talking about that, when they say you can't use confidential health information, this is not where these studies are saying John Smith has high blood pressure. and so They're not listing you by name. They're just looking at the numbers. 
And because it still comes from a confidential health information source, the EPA is saying, oh, we're going to limit whether you can use this. Now, the EPA has defended this by saying that they are, they're basically trying to make data available so it can be validated. And this is another stupid lie. How can data be made available for alleged validation when that same data is being accepted only from restricted sources? So if you can't use confidential health information that is included as influential scientific information, that means that the only sources that they could use to evaluate whether something has, has violated EPA standards would come from the polluting industries themselves. So what sources are left? If confidential health information is denied or limited, again, data supplied by the polluting industry itself. So what I have to say here is remember that mantra, hello, Fox, enjoy the hen house? This is ludicrous. Rosenberg of the Union of Concerned Scientists explained, quote, here we are relying on epidemiology to figure out what's going on. In the midst of all this, they're trying to jam through this proposal that would say that this kind of information couldn't be used to craft regulations. Okay? So Rosenberg added that there are a lot of uses of epidemiology that would help not only during the COVID crisis, but also during any future disease outbreak. And they quoted Rosenberg, quote, suppose you wanted to look at hotspots where you have very high numbers of COVID-19 cases. So you could take steps to address that specific problem. The only way you'd know that is epidemiology. But with this proposed rule, according to Rosenberg, quote, you wouldn't be able to give that information full weight because the data has to be public. But that data can never be made public. No one is going to want their test results publicly available. In other words, in order to use confidential health data, it's either limited so you can't use most of it, or you would, each person would have to get permission to have their test results publicly available. And they know that's a no-go. So essentially, the Trump EPA has said that in order to use private data, they would have to out everyone's medical data, which means obtaining permission. This is not necessary to name each person's data to use in an epidemiological study. Breaking each subject's confidentiality is not necessary for any type of epidemiological research. It never has been, but it's a great way to basically make sure there's no evidence of industry contributing to this, and especially making communities of color sicker and sicker. Senator Tom Carper challenged um, and now EPA um, Administrator Andrew Wheeler, and he cited examples of, quote, studies that could be usefully relied upon during a pandemic or other crisis that would also be excluded by the EPA's rule. And Wheeler, he urged Wheeler to withdraw the rule. And then here's what happened. Trump's EPA libeled Senator Carter. Quote, uh, the EPA provided the following response. Quote, the senator, whether it be by letter or press statement, continues to make patently false and misleading claims about the proposed, in the name of this, strengthening transparency and regulatory science rule. Transparency in science that enables independent validation of scientific conclusions is important to advancing the agency's mission. In no way does the proposed rule or the supplemental notice suppress research or censor scientists, end quote except that this, this rule called, ironically called, the Strengthening Transparency and Regulatory Science Rule, in other words, suppress research and censor scientists. 
Trump's EPA suppresses the information by manipulating agency rules which contradict historically accepted scientific practice, especially in the field of epidemiology, and in a, in a very deceitful way. The EPA response also noted, quote, our most important environmental statutes provide EPA with authority to issue emergency orders or respond to address emergencies to protect human health and the environment, and this proposed rule would not limit or impede EPA's authority to undertake such responses, end quote. All I have to say is, really? Based on what documented proof is it reflect on the prevalent research method in the field of epidemiology? I would challenge that, that EPA administrators, please cite your source. The Trump EPA refused Carper's request. All right, we can go on. There was polluted communities are ravaged even more by COVID-19. They demand environmental justice. Another article in The Intercept by Sharon Lerner. And this deals with Newark. And there's quite a few um, statistics here that we're not going to be able to get to tonight. There's just too much here, frankly. Um, what I will say is that you have this situation where communities of color have been dumped on by polluting industries. And it has resulted in a cumul what they call a cumulative impact. And this cumulative impact has made these communities more vulnerable to all sorts of illnesses, including COVID. And, you know, remember early on they were reporting that there were these big racial disparities, especially in black communities, where, you know, here in St. Louis City, the majority of COVID patients that died were black, and everybody was scratching their heads. We don't understand why. Well, they did. Part of it is exposure to pollution, that cumulative effect weakens respiratory systems, weakens your, um, your heart, weakens so many things. And, you know, we have this issue where we have clumping of these toxic and these pollute, polluting industries in what has been classified as, quote, sacrifice zones. And these sacrifice zones are communities that have been dumped on, and they're treated as basically the trash can for the fossil fuel industry, the nuclear industry, um, any sort of toxic waste and so on and so forth. And this is something that has to stop. Dozens, there was an open statement by multiple environmental groups that was issued in July. And they were quoted as saying, quote, disinvestment in environmental justice communities has contributed to polluted air and water, fewer hospitals, and healthy food options jobs without paid sick leave, and crowded living conditions that make social distancing difficult. These factors, the lack of access to clean air and water, health care or paid leave, or self and safe and healthy food, transportation, housing, and workplaces, among others, cause the disproportionate impacts we witnessed. I think that pretty much says it all. And these collective environmental groups called for strengthening of environmental and health protections, and specifically, they called for laws that, quote, require the evaluation of the cumulative impacts faced by residents of environmentally overburdened areas before citing any more facilities there. This is a fancy way of saying they want the law to require some sort of evaluation of this long-time impact that's faced by people in these, these basically, these sacrifice zones before they allow any more polluting industries to basically set up business there. 
That's what it means. You know, you can imagine these these factories would not be allowed anywhere near affluent white gated communities. We know this. But these sacrifice zones, that, that is the term sacrifice zone is a polite term for basically the environmentally racist policy of dumping and poisoning communities of color, period. There's no other way to do it. So believe it or not, in New Jersey, there was legislation that was actually introduced starting in 08, and it was called the Cumulative Impacts Bill. And it would have required companies that were trying to basically for new permits or to expand it would have to be determined whether the new facility would, quote, cause or contribute to adverse cumulative environmental or public health stressors in the overburdened community that are higher than those borne by other communities. So the idea of these environmental, these cumulative impact bills, and there's been more than one, this is just an example, the idea is that these communities should not have to suffer more than other communities that do not suffer in that way. And you know, the bill didn't go very far, all right, and it's not a great bill. It doesn't require the state to deny applications for permit renewal um, if they add additional environmental stressors to those communities, but it was a beginning. And so, you know, we can go on. We've got five minutes left, and when we're talking about these sacrifice zones, you, it goes back to the whole issue of environmental racism once again. These are communities that previously and still are segregated. Um, many of the white middle class left, and what was the people that remained were people of color, often because banks redlined, and a lot of uh, families, black families, couldn't obtain loans in other areas. Their property values declined, more industry moved in, and basically our our public servants, and I say that jokingly, in most states, in communities of color, those public servants basically announced, we're open for business. Come on. Just use our communities. You know, you can dump on them. We don't care. And that is exactly what happened. Communities of color were dumped on. They were poisoned. They were unjustly treated. Now, now Senator Cory Booker has a history. He really did try to fight this. Um, and Booker, ironically, grew up in an affluent part of New Jersey called Harrington Park, but he moved to Newark in his 20s. And he sums it up pretty well. To quote Booker, I was surrounded by the awful extremes of asthma and lead poisoning. Um, and he talked about decades of redlining, racist mortgage policies, and so on. We're really ignoring this fundamental injustice. The idea that communities of color have been dumped on, this really is about a, a, a crime against humanity. Now, in February 2020, House Dems Raul Gravala and Don Machichin introduced uh, an Environmental Justice for Act alt law, but it didn't go anywhere. We're going to talk about that in probably our next installment. Um, what I really wanted to focus on was the idea that this environmental racism is real. It is a crime against humanity. And those of us in the progressive circles have to stop being so fragile. and We have to face this fact and understand, while it's nice to be worried about whether or not a particular um, 
a particular type of um, hoot owl or something, we need to look at what's happening to our human friends and how they've been dumped on. And we haven't really done that. Um, so what we really have to do at this point is look at our practices. We have to look at uh, polluting industries. We have to look at the EPA. And we have to consider the fact that the present Trump administration has exacerbated the effects of environmental racism exponentially. Trump's EPA has revised policy rules so repeat offender polluters can continue to poison the air, water, and food, especially of communities of color with legal impunity. We shouldn't be shocked as EPA's EPA is headed by former fossil fuel lobbyist Andrew Wheeler, along with Susan Bodini, the assistant administrator for the EPA Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance. Um, until we halt the practice of hiring attorneys who previously worked either as lobbyists or representing polluters, we will never have an honest EPA. We're going to be talking about this in more depth next week. Um, but I, I really wanted to push forward the idea that environmental racism goes hand in hand with all of this. And again, this is a crime against humanity. We are, our communities of color are our brothers and sisters, and they demand much better from us. We have not been good stewards for our brothers and sisters in communities of color, and the time is now. And when it comes to sacrifice zones. I will repeat the mantra used by many Jews in that basically never again is now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.